Good morning. Before we begin, I'd like to invite the children to think about a time they had a disagreement with somebody. Were you ever having a hard time maybe getting along with a brother or sister, a friend or schoolmate? How did that make you feel? When stuff like that happens, who is a safe grown-up you can ask for help when you have strong feelings? Now into 1 Corinthians 6. Today we interrupt our regular scheduled programming in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7 about sexual matters and more sexual matters and sexual matters once again, with an extended digression on lawsuits. It's like a Valentine's Day special. Of course, chapter six also includes a second half that returns to those other subjects regarding the body. But since Amy did such a great job with those last week on chapter five, I'll let, I'll let us consider her the expert, the expert in that area. Just kidding, Amy. In any case, the bulk of what we'll talk about today is the believer's relationship to the legal system. The issue is, of course, just as pressing a matter today as it was in the first century. If anything, we have more recourse to a state-run court system than anybody did in the early Roman Empire. Our legal rights, obligations, and liabilities in our present time and place are, at least in theory, far more comprehensive. So we do well to attend to what scripture has to say about Christians going to court with one another. I see two major questions that 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11 raises for us. First, what exactly perplexes Paul so much about court cases between Christians? I'll admit we don't probably think about this issue very much. And why is it such a big deal for him? Second, a serious danger exists when this passage is used to shield churches and Christian leaders from legal exposure. To put it differently, how do we in the present honor not just the letter of 1 Corinthians 6, but also and especially its spirit? The key to both questions is to understand that what Paul writes here is not designed, or I'm sorry, is designed to protect the weaker party from the stronger party in these suits. And it is not designed in the first place to manage the church's brand or reputation. To begin, we need to appreciate the degree to which inequality in the first century in Corinth dwarfs the inequality in contemporary America. As bad as the latter is, in the former setting, it was worse. Today, as a rule, it is very expensive to bring suit or to defend oneself in a civil case, or alternatively, to receive a high quality defense in a criminal case. This obviously disadvantages people with low incomes. Multiply those economic imbalances several fold for the early Roman Empire. A peasant living hand to mouth had no chance of mounting a legal defense against the landed elite or successful merchants. Political inequality was also more severe. At the time, the legal protections of Roman law were mostly afforded to Roman citizens. There was pretty much no concept that people deserved economic or political protection just because they were poor. What mattered was whether or not you were Roman. And to be a Roman citizen meant that, while you might certainly be poor, you were probably not indigent. A modest safety net protected citizens. You were very much exposed, legally as well as economically, as a poor non-citizen. 
As a brief aside, for all that we moderns like to lay the church's ills on Constantine the Great in the 300s after Jesus, it's this Christian emperor Constantine who introduced into Roman law concrete provisions for the poor simply because they were poor, whether or not they were Roman citizens. Human need took legal priority over policing the border between insiders and outsiders, and there's perhaps a lesson there. Okay, end aside. In any case, it is in light of those great imbalances of power that Paul's rhetoric starts burning hot in chapter six. Does anyone among you dare, he writes, when that one has a complaint against another to go to court before the unjust and not before the saints? I am translating the Greek word adikon, which your ESVs are gonna call unrighteous, as unjust here, because it highlights the key term that Paul employs throughout this passage to make his point. Unjust and its antonym just more accurately reflect the sense of the Greek word than the more abstract unrighteous and righteous in English. In light of the historical context I gave you and this little note on the word unjust, we are now in a position to understand the opening as a first century Christian reader would. Paul says, do my eyes deceive me? Did I really read in your letter that the well-to-do among you have the audacity to sue your brothers and sisters in the Lord who lack the means that you do? Can you really be dragging the holy ones of God to court to be judged by unjust pagans just so you can get what you want? How can you claim to be so learned and wise? yet not know that both you and these same holy ones, that's right, these low-class offenders among you, that you will all judge the world. Heck, you're all going to judge the angels themselves. So can it really be, oh wise and elite Corinthians, that you cannot figure out how to settle petty disputes among yourselves? That brings us to the question of what kind of disputes this scripture has in view. The term trivial cases in the ESV, um, it renders a Greek term in verses three and four, biotika. Trivial cases unfortunately sounds generic and dismissive. And I think we can do better. Now biotika might sound to you like the word biotic, as in the probiotics in your yogurt. And that's because the English word derives directly from the Greek. It means more or less life things or life stuff. In your yogurt, the life things are bacteria. Yum. In this text, the life things are matters pertaining to everyday life. So in modern times, Paul would be talking about small claims court, or as I like to call it, He's talking about the Judge Judy principle. Can you imagine this case being argued before Judge Judy? If so, that's Biotika. The episode titles are actually pretty good examples of Biotika, these small matters pertaining to life. Uh, for example, plumber cons woman, noisy granny, freeloading guests, deadbeat dad, and of course, lovers disputes. And you know what? The level of shame you should probably have by parading your problems on Judge Judy's reality TV show 
is exactly the kind of shame you should feel for dragging your Christian brothers and sisters into petty small claims court. It is exactly that stupid, according to Paul. Even if you win these things, you lose. Next, Paul indicates another, maybe even better course of action. Just take the loss. The word for unjust appears again here, this time as a verb. Why not rather adikesta, or be treated unjustly? As some translations put it, why not rather suffer wrong? Furthermore, why not rather be cheated, be swindled? But instead, Paul says, you cheat and adiketa, do injustice to your Christian brothers and sisters. Remember who we are talking about here. These are well-to-do citizens of Corinth. The simple fact that they own their houses in the city where their Sunday worship was held indicates substantial wealth. In that regard, it's not that unlike Northern Virginia, where home ownership means something completely different than it does in, say, Missouri. There may come a point, then is now, when you have a pretty binary decision to make in a dispute with someone. Get what's yours at another's expense, or just let it go. And the scripture makes the choice crystal clear. Paul will allow for appointing a Christian arbiter for these quarrels. Or, if you can, just eat it. But what you cannot do is litigate a fellow believer into financial ruin. At that point, you're no different from the unbelieving judge presiding over the case. At this juncture, I think it's worth pointing something out about the language of rights that you may have heard us use in the sermon series on 1 Corinthians. Namely, that there are times when we're called to lay down our rights out of love for another. What we're talking about right now in 1 Corinthians 6 is I think a healthy way to process that concept. Sometimes we wield a disproportionate amount of power over somebody else. There will be times when those less privileged or powerful than we are cause us some kind of injury, slight, or harm. We might have every right, legally or morally, to demand the other party go make it right. Now each situation is different, but sometimes the right thing to do will be to let it go. Maybe someone you know sideswipes your car in the parking lot one day. And you know they're struggling financially much more than you are. In this scenario, the Christ-like thing to do might just mean you take on the cost of repairs yourself. A less healthy way of thinking about laying down one's rights is when we expect others to do it for our own benefit. And it's also problematic when the rights in question are bound up with the basic dignity and respect each person is due simply because they are human beings. I do not suggest that it is a Christian obligation to always tolerate it when others dehumanize you. Now we arrive at verses nine through 11. They are so challenging for many of us today that modern lectionaries often just omit this passage altogether. I noticed this in my own devotional reading a few years ago when in the daily readings, it went from 1 Corinthians 6, 8, 
Um, that's where one day's reading ended. And then the next day, the reading picked up at 1 Corinthians 6.12. And I was like, wait a second. I can understand it, though. These verses have sadly been weaponized to the great hurt of countless people. But I do think we would lose something by effectively deleting them. That same word for the unjust appears in verse 9, rendered unrighteous in the ASV, and then again as a verb in verse 11, and it is a very theologically weighty word, justified. In the Greek, it is therefore bound much more tightly to the preceding words Paul has than it appears in translation. Paul warns, don't fool yourselves. You commit grave injustice by bringing these lawsuits. And lest you very wise Corinthians feign ignorance on this point, the adequoi, the unjust, those who do wrong, the unrighteous, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you Corinthians remember what we were just talking about before? You know, the sexually immoral people, those idolaters and adulterers, all that temple prostitution stuff. Well, I'm talking to you now. You wouldn't use the legal system to steal, would you? After all, thieves are not going to inherit the kingdom of God either. Would you really be so greedy as to sue the shirts off your poor brethren while you enjoy getting drunk off your wine? Are you so litigious as to slander fellow believers and cheat them just because the law says you can? No, it cannot be. That's the old you. That was you before your baptism. You were washed clean. You were set apart for God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God, you were justified. Remember what I said at the beginning of the letter? For us, Jesus Christ is our justification. He is our justice. To commit such injustice is completely inconsistent with your identity as a member of Christ's body. For you cannot be both united to the one who is justice itself, and yet be so wed to the injustices of the present evil age. Turning now to the present day, we unfortunately find this passage all too often used to justify churches and other ministries to preserve their power and their reputation. Criminal activity, instead of being reported to law enforcement, is sadly often dealt exclusively in-house, if indeed it is dealt with at all. The same problem can emerge even when there's no criminality involved. But needless to say, nothing could be further from the Holy Spirit's teaching in this text. When Christian individuals and institutions protect themselves at the expense of the weak and the vulnerable, they call their justification in Christ into question. While it would be really nice if we didn't need it, the justice system at its best helps to keep churches and their members honest. Sadly, just this week, a formal report came out detailing exactly this kind of warped application of 1 Corinthians 6, this time at uh, uh, 
a massive international ministry of Christian apologetics, the Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries. And I'm sure many of you are aware. The sexual abuses Rabbi Zacharias committed were staggering. Although the vast scope of it has only come to the public's attention since his death in May of 2020, a major abuse allegation was actually made back in 2017 that presaged so many more to come. To be clear, I don't have any way of knowing if the ministry was talking about 1 Corinthians 6 and was explicitly forbidding people from going to court, although I think that's a reasonable inference. But what we do know is that instead of inviting accountability from the outside, the ministry's board rigorously opposed such a move and sided with its founder, Zacharias. In addition to hurting that victim in 2017, so much more abuse was allowed to continue under the board's watch as it declined to pursue the matter any further. They have since repented, thank the Lord, and are bringing in excellent outside groups to provide much needed third party oversight and accountability to RZIM, not to mention support for victims. Therefore, it is worth repeating. 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about small claims, Judge Judy level lawsuits, and its instructions are meant to serve to protect vulnerable parties from predatory litigation. May it never be used to protect the strong against the weak. If a Christian or Christian organization attempts to do otherwise, run. Finally, I would like to put in a good word for lawsuits as a force for good. By way of conclusion, I would like to share that litigation can even be a high calling for a Christian lawyer. When my wife, Jody, was in law school, she worked at the National Association for the Deaf for her 1L summer job. In its legal work, the NAD sues businesses and other organizations for not being compliant with the ADA or Americans with Disabilities Act. Jody tells me that her boss, and this is a really fun story, that her boss had no experience whatsoever in disabilities law when he applied for the job. And when he was being interviewed, the interviewers naturally asked the question, why should we hire you? And his answer was, I want to sue people. So they said, welcome aboard. The lawyers for the who work for the National Association for the Deaf use the courts to compel organizations to, to provide accommodations for deaf people that the ADA mandates, such as hospitals that, that refuse to provide an ASL interpreter for patients, which is unfortunately very common and can lead to quite tragic results. So for the young people listening today who are looking to make the world a better place, who knows? God may very well call you one day to sue people for a righteous cause. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your scriptures address either directly or indirectly all matters of our lives, including this, at first glance, obscure application of your gospel. God, I pray that you will teach us as citizens of Northern Virginia who may who may well stand in a position of privilege or power over others, that we would wield these things to the benefit of others and not for self-preservation or protection or for brand management. We pray God that in all things, we would exemplify the mind of Christ in our dealings with others, 
including ways of using the legal system. I pray, God, that you would protect those in our congregation, in our community, and the whole world over who are weak and vulnerable, that you would protect them from predatory uses of law, and that Christians would be advocates for them. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.